And when you look at the Cowboys and Dak Prescott in particular, his margin of, of play has, has widely varied based on the receivers available to him. When just one of those main guys has been out in his career, he's been significantly worse. And the Cowboys offense struggles when Prescott doesn't have time in the pocket and two good receivers to throw to. everybody welcome into props and hops a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer i'm your host matt landis got two special announcements right off the top this time first up this is our first live stream if all goes well you can expect more of it moving forward and if you're catching this in podcast form to watch the show live you can follow me on twitter at mlandis18 also on youtube i've dropped a props and hops link in the show notes to that youtube channel And the goal here is to make things interactive. If anybody has any thoughts or questions, feel free to chime in in real time, and we'll get to what we can throughout the course of the conversation. And if you prefer listening in audio form, no harm done there. This is a pure value add, so in podcast form, consider it business as usual. Announcement number two, some listeners might recall from previous episodes, I've mentioned Props and Hops being part of the Blue Wire Hustle program. And I've recently been called up to the big leagues, joining the flagship Blue Wire podcast network. So I look forward to using the power of that network to grow this show, as well as to contributing myself to Blue Wire's first-rate portfolio of podcasts. And speaking of first-rate portfolios, let's get on to this week's show. Our guest is no stranger to those first-rate portfolios on NFL Sundays. He is NFL handicapper Josiah Clark, also known as Sharp Clark NFL on Twitter, And it's always football betting season these days, so Josiah pumps to be having this conversation on the last day of May. Welcome to Props and Hops. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Really happy that you reached out and and happy to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on board. And I'd love to start off by getting some of your background. Why don't you tell us how you got into betting? So I've been betting for about 18 years or so casually, just, you know, small bankroll, Bovada, you know, offshore kind of stuff. Um, mostly NFL. Um, it was just a way to kind of, I guess, increase the interest in the games. And <clears throat> it's fun to have a financial stake in your own opinions. <clears throat> Sorry, bad start. <laughs> it's fun to have a financial stake in your own opinions and, and analysis. And so I'd always try to find angles. It's just the way my brain works. Um, but most of it was just sort of breaking even. And every now and then I would withdraw a small amount of profit, but it was just, you know, messing around. And then it wasn't until the pandemic hit and a, a couple of things, a kind of confluence of things happened. One is I, I have a good job. I have more disposable income. So I was able to increase my bankroll. Uh, the, the pandemic put me work from home and, and I had a ton of free time. And I had kind of developed this uh, sort of way of thinking about NFL games that I wanted to really kind of give it every ounce of effort I had to try to solve the problem of handicapping NFL games. Uh, and so that was the 2020 season. Um, and it went extremely well. And so I just have been kind of building from there. And I know on your website, you have a story about blackjack and how you got started along the lines of betting outside of the NFL. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that blackjack story and any parallels you might see between that experience and how you approach the NFL these days. 
Sure. So the, the story is, is pretty simple. I, I used to go to Shreveport to play poker uh, all the time with my buddies. And, and you know, one time after a, a successful session, we decided to go play some blackjack and I sat down. The cheapest table was $15 a hand. And so I put $100 down and I lost seven straight hands and all my money <laughs> right away. And so I went home and I thought, you know what, like, I don't like losing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and I'm going to win. So I, I bought a book on counting cards and, and, you know, optimal blackjack strategy, taught myself how to count cards, really got disciplined and focused, and then went back to the same casino and just spent the whole weekend playing blackjack and won about $2,200 over the course of the weekend. And nice. it was just like, all right, you know, you got me once, but I got you back. And, and that's, I think that's how I approach, you know, NFL betting is, is when I, when I'm tired of losing is when I turn it on and I'm, I'm focused on every aspect of the game and how to get every edge. And so I think it's just the intensity and focus uh, that I put into that is now what I'm putting into the NFL. And let's dig into that NFL approach a little further. I know on your Twitter bio, again, that's at Sharp Clark NFL, Clark with an E at the end of it. You say that you watch every snap of every game and measure holistic effectiveness. And I've just got to ask, how do you even go about watching every snap of every game? And how do you think that sets apart your process from other betters that are in the gambling space? I think, well, first of all, the practical aspect is NFL Game Pass. You can watch every game on a snap by snap, uh, just play by play without the, the breaks in between. And so each game takes, you know, roughly 35 to 45 minutes, depending on, you know, how, you know, overtime and stuff like that. So that's how I watch all the games. It's it's a focused activity. I'm not watching six games at once. I'm watching one game, focusing, analyzing, you know, and and I partner that with some computer programs that I wrote to to analyze the data. Um, but but I think backing up a bit, my approach is is a little bit different. I think a lot of people in the space are uh, sports betters who bet on the NFL and handicap the NFL. I'm not a sports better who handicaps the NFL. I am primarily an NFL analyst and I use that information to then bet on the NFL because I think that's the best way to create a financial benefit from the work that I do. And so um, I'm not so much focused on numbers in the way that I think a lot of traditional handicappers are. I'm focused on the NFL teams themselves. And, and I think uh, I mentioned in, in a tweet uh, maybe yesterday about how it's, it's kind of a Taoist approach. And so what I'm doing is, is you know, Dallas principles are kind of like understanding the nature of things. Everyone and everything has a nature. And if you can understand that nature and then act in accordance with that nature or understand the true nature of something, it helps you to understand when that will succeed, when that will fail, the types of results you might get. And so practically speaking, when I'm watching these NFL games, I'm going back to first principles and I'm asking the question, when this team gets on the field, how effectively will they move the ball down the field and into the end zone while reducing the risk of giving the ball to the other team? And then on defense, how effectively will they stop that? That's what I'm trying to answer is like that, that very basic question, because the teams that do that well will win. Um, and so my analytical framework tries to quantify that as a holistic concept, uh, not get bogged down by all the individual statistics that I think can sometimes distract from the big picture and then you and then create that into a numerical number for every game, every performance that I call an effectiveness rating, uh, both on offense and defense, and then use those numbers to quantify the teams and understand, uh, you know, how they truly performed, regardless of what the final score was. As you talk about 
drilling in on those numbers. I know it must involve a lot of deep dives on stats, and that reminds me of something our mutual friend, Las Vegas Chris, let me know about your approach really being uh, good at quantifying those kinds of things that so many people can struggle to quantify. And I wonder from your vantage point, have you ever run into a situation where maybe there's too much focus on the numbers or how do you go about balancing the objective versus the subjective when it comes to handicapping the NFL? It's a great question. And I actually, none of my numbers are dependent on any statistics. So I'm not, I'm not bogged down by any stats when I'm doing these numbers. This is purely me watching the game and analyzing every play for how successful as a whole that team is, right? And, and success is defined differently in every single play, right? So sometimes success is bleeding the clock as you, as you run out the clock, you know? Sometimes success is getting an explosive play when you need it. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of contextually looking at every play to understand how well the team is accomplishing what it needs to accomplish. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I'm smoothing out the individual variance that happens in NFL games. So, you know, to use a hypothetical example, it's, it's kind of extreme. You know, if a quarterback, uh, let's say it's third and 15, and the quarterback drops back and he throws a screen, a wide receiver screen that is covered by two defenders, right? That play is an absolutely awful play. It will almost never result in a first down. But let's say the tr- two defenders trip over each other and the receiver breaks loose an 80-yard touchdown, right? So EPA per play, you know, statistics, all everything is going to spit out a really positive number for that play you turn to third and 15 into an 80 yard touchdown, like, wow. But when I watch that play, I, I, I look at the range of outcomes of how that play would, what, what that play would lead to. And that would get a very negative score for me because you didn't even give your team a chance to get the first down 99 out of hundred times, if not more. Right. So that's, that's what I'm looking at and how I'm analyzing it. And I think that level of context can help to explain the level of content that you're creating these days I mean, as a Chargers fan, I'll just jump right to that team. We'd kind of joked before recording this about whether or not we would dedicate this podcast to just being the Justin Herbert appreciation show. And when you previewed the Chargers on your website, you, I think, really hit it on the head. Offensively, needing to get more efficient and explosive on early downs, and also looking for Justin Herbert to take a leap when it comes to processing more complex things that defenses are throwing at him. I've heard the Athletics beat reporter Daniel Popper talk about the fact that Herbert, in his mind, might be poised for a mastery of the offense that, you know, we haven't seen maybe since Drew Brees was running the show for the Chargers. The difference being that Brees, you know, reached a Hall of Fame level because uh, almost solely of his mental ability. Physically, by NFL standards, it, it wasn't all there, but the mental tools were so great it could overcome a lot. If we have Herbert's physical tools with that, you know, anywhere near Drew Brees level mastery of the offensive scheme, that could be a combination that I don't know if I've seen before as a fan. So I'll I'll really be looking for that point that you brought up about Herbert processing things that defenses will try to throw at him. And on the other side of the ball, defensively, as much as it's a passing league these days, got to figure out how to do something to contain the run. And from a coaching standpoint, you talked about Brandon Staley being a high variance coach and maybe looking at alt lines in Chargers games. Sometimes he'll make an optimal choice, but it can mean, you know, the, the game will swing to a wider distribution of outcomes when we look at margin of victory. So I added in a Twitter thread that, again, the Chargers, because alt lines might be good for them, teasers might be bad for a team like that. If we've got a lot of variance, you lose some of the value of crossing that you know key corridor of three through seven. So from the offense to the defense to looking at things holistically and from a coaching standpoint, I really like the approach you outlined there. 
and it resonated with me as a fan specifically of that team. But you're doing this across the league. So I've got to ask, as you've gone through this process, creating all this great content, what have been your biggest takeaways so far from your team preview series? <laughs> a great question because there's so many. Um, so my team preview series, the, the primary focus of it is to understand the, the true nature, like I said, of every team last year with, with time to breathe instead of watching film as I do all through the season. Sometimes I miss things. It's, it's hard to have a full grasp of every single team throughout the season. And so when I do these studies, I'm looking for things I missed, understanding things uh, in a deeper way so that once I incorporate the off-season changes, I'm starting from the correct starting point. And I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of where to start from. But the secondary aspect is understanding patterns and archetypes that emerge with NFL teams, because things that have happened in the past can inform how we view and anticipate teams in the future when we see the same kinds of patterns playing out. So I'm going to use a couple examples uh, to talk about that. So uh, there's actually two, two examples that coalesce on the same team. And I'm going to describe the examples and I'm going to let you guess what, whether you know which team I'm talking about here. So first is uh, what we learned from the Browns last year. In, in 2020, they had one of the league's best offenses, despite ba having Baker Mayfield at quarterback. They were an outlier. Every other top offense I had had an elite quarterback. And that was because their offensive line played really well. They had an incredible run game. And nothing was too much for Baker Mayfield because all he had to do was complete just the key throws to keep things going. And it, and it all gelled and worked. We saw a massive regression on offense in 2021. A few offensive linemen got hurt and it all went downhill from there. Everything fell apart. They were really bad offensively compared to the year before. And they, did, they missed the playoffs, even though their defense took a major step forward. And so what we learned is... When, when, a team, when a team is successful on offense, but that, that success depends on success on the offensive line and hiding the quarterback, essentially, uh, that team is primed for regression if injuries hit that offensive line, which a lot of times it does because you're talking about five big guys, like there's going to be some injuries. So that's the first lesson, the archetype. The second is uh, I've learned over the years that offense has a much stronger influence on my game ratings and what I would say performance than defense does. So, so like dictating, when you look at the numbers, defensive numbers tend to just reflect the, the quality of the offenses they face, obviously adjusted slightly for how good the defense is, whereas offenses tend to perform at whatever level they perform at, regardless of who the defense is. So it's much more wider range of outcomes in offense. And so sometimes you'll get a defense that gets way overrated because they happen to play teams at like the right time in the right circumstances backup quarterbacks, injuries, things like that. And so the defensive metrics look really good. You know, they're getting really good pass rush, pass rush win rate, getting good sacks, turnovers, really, you know, doing all the things that show up, but they did it against really bad teams. And so when that happens, that the defense can get overrated. And so in 2020, the Washington football team was, by my numbers, not a great defense. It was like 10th. But even, even after that, when you dug in deeper, they played so many backup quarterbacks, Ryan Finley for the Bengals, which was already a bad team, but uh, Ben DiNucci for the Cowboys, already a bad team, bad offensive line. That, um, they, played, they played Nate Sudfeld in, in that last game against Philadelphia. They, like throughout the year, they had all these fluky breaks that made the defense look really good. And so in the offseason last year, you know, people were rating Washington's defense as top of the NFL. I saw a really respected analyst say they were the number two defense. And I was just like, no, this is, this is really, really bad analysis. And so I, I actually, my biggest offseason position last year was the Washington football team under and, and that cashed. And so 
those two things are coalescing on the same team in 2022, and that's why I bet against them. And let's see if you can guess who I'm talking about. Well, when you talked about the Browns and Baker Mayfield and thinking about the defense that might be different because there's a new coach with the team I'm thinking of, I got two of vibes, so I'm thinking about the Miami Dolphins. Okay, so it's it's the same division. It's the Patriots. So okay. Because the, the, the thing is that the Dolphins weren't good last year. So specifically, the Patriots offense was, was good last year. I mean, you look at any of the numbers. By my numbers, they were sure. seventh best offense in the NFL with Mac Jones at quarterback. And, and like Mac Jones is not an elite quarterback. Like he did a good job. He was a good rookie. He did, he did things well. He made some good throws. But that offense thrived because they ran the ball. They had a good offensive line and they hid Mac Jones. And now they've lost two offensive linemen going into the year. So when you talk about regression, when the offensive line gets hurt, what about when you're already starting down two offensive linemen, one or two guys get hurt, this entire offense is going to be, and they don't have good receivers. It's, I think it's primed for a massive regression on offense. Um, With the Patriots. Sorry, go ahead. I'll let you finish your thought and then I have a follow-up, but go ahead and speak about the defense and, and perhaps JC Jackson going to uh, my chargers, maybe our chargers for the sake of this conversation could be good for LA and bad for new England. Yeah. So J- losing JC Jackson uh, hurts, but they also faced a really easy schedule of opposing quarterbacks and specifically, and this is where this is kind of an example of how I approach, you know, analyzing these teams is I don't say, well, they had a, they had a bad defense that played good quarterbacks. They had a defense that thrived against inexperienced quarterbacks because Bill Belichick's designs complex coverage schemes that really fluster rookie quarterbacks or inexperienced quarterbacks. And they played a ton of them last year, uh, a ton of backups, a ton of rookies, and they just capitalized and they had these massive games. Well, next year they don't face by my count, any rookies. Uh, I mean, obviously there's always a chance that people get hurt. Um, but you know, outside of Justin Fields um, and then Zach Wilson in division, every quarterback they're playing is pretty much an experienced quarterback who can handle that kind of defense. So I think we're going to see defensive regression as well as offensive regression. So a couple of items as a follow-up question, more to play devil's advocate, because I think the foundation you laid out there makes all the sense in the world. But when I think about the Patriots specifically last year, two of their games that come to mind that, you know, they, they could have had a better outcome one at home against the Bucks, Brady's return that Sunday night game early in the season, a bit of a monsoon, and it seemed like New England uh, was on the verge of winning that game. They were not able to pull that off. And then they had a crushing overtime loss at home to the Cowboys as well, where uh, not only did they lose the game, but they lost uh, the ability to cover the spread with the Cowboys overtime touchdown. So that one still uh, sits a little bit rough for me. So there are two games that even though they, they were perhaps better than they should have been, they, they could have been even better if you look at those coin flip outcomes going against them at home in big spots against quality opposition. And then with a coach like Bill Belichick, um, is there a certain point at which you think, you know, over the years, I know a lot of sharp handicappers that are, are very good with the quantitative side of things just haven't been able to catch up with something that perhaps Belichick does a little bit differently with New England. And they've been that statistical outlier for seemingly most of his tenure. So do you take a, you know, any grain of salt with the Belichick dynamic against the other quantifiable things you have looking forward about the Patriots' outlook for this coming season? So first, let me address the specific games you mentioned. So this is where me being grounded in my own metrics it, is meaningful to me. So you can look at both of those games, and you're 100% correct. You know, they, could have, they could have won both of those games against good teams. Um, but... For me, the results don't always speak to the quality of play in the game. 
And so I'm using my own, uh, what I call effectiveness ratings to quantify performance in a game. And so I don't really care how close the game is. I don't, I don't really care who wins. There are times where the team that wins was not the better team. And so when I'm analyzing, I'm looking at the, the effectiveness ratings and what that translates into in terms of win percentage. And for, for, those, for those games, I had New England as a significantly worse than Tampa Bay and significantly worse than Dallas. Uh, by, by, based on my ratings, Tampa Bay and Dallas both win those games about 90% of the time. And so I'm not really worried about end game variance and how close it might have been. And, and yeah, obviously weather plays a role when, when you have a downfield passing attack like Tom Brady has. Um, and, and Belichick does coach well, and, and that is a factor. And, and, you know, things like special teams don't show up in my ratings. And so that's, you know, a potential weakness in my system or just something that I'm aware of uh, going in. But ultimately, you can't predict uh, things like special teams touchdowns. Like they're not... They're not things you can predict when you're handicapping a game because they're too random. Uh, and there's no evidence that like, you know, having a bunch of special teams touchdowns is going to lead to future special teams touchdowns. It's very few and far between. Um, and then things like the, the nuances of the game that end up impacting the final score, those things even out. And so to the extent that I think Belichick is a good coach, I think it's going to be reflected in the quality of play that the Patriots put on the field. And based on the quality of play, I thought they should have lost both those games. And so it doesn't bother, those results don't bother me. Makes sense. Well, you talked about using this kind of data as a good starting point at this stage of the offseason to set the proper framework so that you're looking at things from perhaps a better perspective than a lot of other people just looking back to top line results from this past season. And another starting point that I think that ties in with your process would be a pin tweet that you have on hidden strength of schedule. And I know a lot of us have heard, you know, don't look at last year's one loss record, look at regular season win totals for the coming season's opponents. That's certainly a better way to do it. But I'd wonder if you could even expand on that when it comes to what you perceive to be hidden strength of schedule and how that might uncover some edges to an even greater extent. Yeah, so so that's step one, right? <laughs> so I'm actually in the process of, uh, I'm creating a basically one page PDFs on every team that is a preview of the season with, with betting advice. And so step one of that, of, of what will eventually be a one pager is analyzing last season's uh, results. And so I take all of my game ratings and I take strength of schedule and adjust the game ratings based on the strength of schedule. And then I adjust it further based on what you call, what I call hidden strength of schedule elements. And so this is basically when uh, the best example is Kansas City played against Green Bay and Green Bay didn't have Aaron Rodgers. He was out because of COVID. And so when you look at strength of schedule, you say like that game goes heavily as a, as a tough game for Kansas City. Green Bay had 13 wins. They're top of a lot of people's power rankings, top five, top six. And, and so strength of schedule is heavily impacted by that game. But in reality, the Packers with Jordan Love are not a good team. In fact, with, with Aaron Rodgers, the way the Chiefs played in that game, with Aaron Rodgers, the, Chiefs, the Packers are going to win that game almost every time. And so that's, that's what I call a hidden strength of schedule element where we need to take some of the strength of schedule off of the Chiefs based on that game. And so then you look at teams that were heavily impacted by COVID, teams that played with backup quarterbacks, those, those kinds of things. Um, so I smooth out the strength of schedule based on those. Um, the best example is the Cowboys. They played the Saints without several offensive linemen, with Taysom Hill at quarterback, no Alvin Kamara, no Marcus Davenport. That was actually a game that I, I was so so big on the Cowboys. I bet the alt line at Cowboys minus 16.5. 
and they were up by 17 with two minutes left. And then the Saints scored a garbage touchdown, which was really annoying. But uh, but the Saints had no chance in that game. They, they played Washington, heavily impacted by COVID. They played the Eagles. Uh, they also had COVID. And then they decided not to activate their players because it was week 18. Who cares? They played the Giants with uh, Mike Lennon after the Giants had started to completely collapse. And so the Cowboys benefited by my numbers about 1.2 games based on all these different hidden factors. So when I like ran my programs to calculate how good were the Cowboys last year, they were actually significantly worse than I expected because of those hidden strength of schedule elements that, that don't get accounted for in strength of schedule analysis. And as you talk about a lot of these hidden factors, I think if you peel back the curtain and show how the, the data all adds up and makes a cohesive picture. At the same time, a lot of people are probably just going to look at last year's records or how far did a team get in the playoffs. And, you know, that's the bottom line at the end of the day. And I get that it's a results oriented business, but I think that could make it interesting when it comes to a hobby of yours. Again, on your website, sharpclark.com, you talked about arguing with strangers on the internet about why they're wrong. And I love that you called that out. I know this is a tongue in cheek in our tone here, but from personal experience, Strangers on the internet don't seem to be open to my advice, even if, or perhaps especially if I know they're wrong. So from your experience, I wonder if you could describe what it's been like for you having those conversations with strangers online and perhaps anything you've uncovered when it comes to the best way to try to change people's minds. Yeah, so I actually, <laughs> I changed that language after you, after you pointed it out, because when I wrote that, it was, I was very early on and I hadn't realized just how, how much people do like how, how bad people are on the internet, how awful the arguments are, how, how much they don't listen. I really value other people's opinions that differ from mine. And so I actually just changed it to where I'm just arguing with strangers online. Um, and and I, I think every conversation is an opportunity to learn someone else's perspective. And so whenever I see something that I don't agree with, I like to engage with that person and try to figure out whether I'm missing something or whether they're just wrong. Um, because that way it's like the opinions that I hold that are valuable and true and based on evidence become strengthened when I understand why people think differently and the re and the opinions that I hold that are wrong, I'm able to let go of when I realize that I've been overlooking something. And so that's, that's my goal with, with the arguments. Um, but I'm always trying to give people respect and start with the baseline assumption that they, uh, they're being honest and they're being thoughtful and, and, you know, conscientious, which Sometimes within the span of one tweet, I realized it was a false assumption, um, <laughs> which is all part, all part of the process. But um, yeah, I mean, people do, do not tend to change their minds, but you find the right people to have those arguments with, the smart people, the, the really thoughtful people, and then you end up learning as much as you end up sharing. I've always appreciated an open mindset like that, but really in the past few weeks, that's been reinforced thinking about somebody who's been on this show a couple of times and who I consider a friend, and that would be pro better Rufus Peabody. Um, a lot's being made now of him working with Establish the Run to sell golf projections after some previous stances he had taken when it comes to selling picks. And there's some gray area there to some people. For others, it's more black and white, and there's a lot of tension. And on Rufus's podcast, Bet the Process, a couple of weeks ago, he and Jeff Ma and, and their guest, another pro better who's been on Props and Hops a couple of times, Rob Pizzola, had a great conversation where I was pretty much agreeing and disagreeing equally with all three of them at different points of the conversation. And afterward, I remember my wife was catching bits and pieces of it, and she knows that I'm really into betting, and she's so supportive, and she she even loves it to a, to a pretty healthy extent. And she's like, okay, so who's right? Who do you agree with? And I'm like, I can't answer that question because I agree and disagree with all three of them. 
And, and I love that because I think sometimes it's not that there's a clear answer and it's very healthy to have that conflict. And when it's approached in a respectful way, those can be some of the most valuable conversations in all of the betting content space. And along the lines of not always seeing eye to eye with other people, I think sometimes we might underestimate the value that that can present because if we're always seeing eye to eye with everybody else, then the betting marketplace is going to get pretty monotonous and edges will get tough to find. You know, that conflict intention from one better to another, from one book to another, that's how we can find lines that are actually worth betting and having a chance to crank out a profit in the long run. To that end, as we look ahead to the 2022 season, with all the homework you've already done, everything you're continuing to do, any early angles you have in the sites that people may want to consider as they eventually get around to building out their own portfolios for the NFL season to come? Sure. So um, I, I probably have much more action already down than I think a lot of uh, professional bettors, because like I said earlier, I'm only an NFL better. So whereas most bettors might be using that capital on other sports right now, I'm, I'm just looking to get the best price down on NFL. So I actually have quite a few bets already. Um, a few examples. I'll start with the ones that probably won't be that helpful because the lines have moved, but just to illustrate uh, the types of bets that I was giving to my members and that I was betting myself, um, when when the DraftKings dropped their season win lines, I bet Atlanta under five and a half wins at plus 100, which was an absurd line um, and is now, I think, at 4.5. And I could I could go the other way and guarantee a profit, but I won't because I think the Falcons are still, I think they're pegged for like four wins or so. Um, the Eagles opened at plus 125 to make the playoffs, which was another absurd line, which I had, which I took. Um, the, the chargers, you're like this one, 25 to one to win the Super Bowl. That was a, that was my first bet of the whole of the off season. That, that was quick. That, that changed in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. I actually tweeted that one out. That was not just for my members. I tweeted out, I said, look, I haven't set up my membership yet. Uh, you know, get it, get on this early. Cause it's going to go away. And then the Colts to win the division plus 145 was, was another early one. Um, but to be fair to my, to the, to your listeners and, and have integrity, there was one bet that moved against me. Um, I bet on the Ravens to win the division at plus 175 when they announced that Deshaun Watson was narrowing his choices to Atlanta and Carolina. Um, of course, it was like a matter of days where he decided to go to Cleveland and I lost all value on that bet. So you're always taking a risk when you make these early bets. But I think when you look at the full slate, I gained so much more value than I lost. And so I would, you know, I would do it again if, if I had to. Um, but as far as current lines, the Patriots under... Um, I took eight and a half uh, plus 105. I think you can still get minus 105, uh, maybe even plus 100 somewhere. I think that's great value for the reasons we talked about. Uh, the Cowboys under 10 and a half. I got that at minus 110. I think you can still get minus 110. Um, that one is, is a reflection of a couple things. One is what I talked about with the hidden schedule elements. They weren't really a 12-win team or whatever they were last year, 11 wins. They were much worse. And then they lost Amari Cooper. Um, they also lost Leo Collins. They lost, um, you know, Randy Gregory, but Amari Cooper is the, is the key here because if you look, and, and this is an example of the way that I look at teams, right? When, when a player moves, I don't say, well, Amari Cooper is worth 0.2 in my ratings. So the Cowboys lose 0.2 and the Browns gain 0.2. Every player is valued based on what he brings to the specific team in the context. And when you look at the Cowboys and Dak Prescott in particular, his success has been wide, like his margin of, of play has, has widely varied based on the receivers available to him. 
when just one of those main guys has been out in his career, he's been significantly worse. And the Cowboys offense struggles when Prescott doesn't have time in the pocket and two good receivers to throw to. They actually have, have not won a game since Amari Cooper went to the Cowboys without Amari Cooper playing. Uh, it's only, it's a small sample size. So don't <laughs> take that out of context. But, but the point is when he left that significantly weakened the team. And so now with all the reliance on CD Lamb, I think the offense takes a major step back, especially without Collins. So in addition to what happened last year, you have significant uh, talent reduction and you have a bad coach. Um, and so I think all those things add up when you can get under a big number on a team that you expect to fail to meet expectations. I think it's worthwhile. So, so that's another one. Um, oh yeah. And charges charges over it. Get, get on. I love the charges. Just get on them. <laughs> and I feel like, I mean, it's an annual exercise here, but the chargers type train is, you know, it's probably already left the station, but with overs or futures for something like winning the super bowl or the conference or the division, are there any numbers where you see some value? Maybe they haven't moved too much yet. So maybe there's a little bit meat left on the bone for any ways uh, that a, you know, somebody with a bullish outlook on the chargers might still want to get in play. Yeah. The, the current best bet I believe out there is over 10 wins minus 110. Uh, you can get that on FanDuel. That one, um, the thing about the division, I do, I, my numbers do say that the chargers should win the division more than the chiefs. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of value on the Chargers division, but I'm never comfortable betting against Patrick Mahomes. I, I just, the Chiefs, the Chiefs are the best team in the NFL until proven otherwise, in my opinion. Um, and I know that's a fairly controversial statement. The, you can make a case the Bills are the best team. Actually, the Bills are probably the best team when you factor in defense. But, but the thing about it is when the game's on the line, there's no quarterback I'd rather have than Patrick Mahomes. And so I don't really want to be in a position where I'm needing the Chiefs to lose in order to win a bet, whereas the Chargers can get to 11 wins uh, regardless of how the Chiefs play. All right, fair enough. I think as I look to transition into our next topic, you talked a lot about your process and you were transparent about that Baltimore bet that moved against you. So I, I think you've already partially answered my next question in a couple of ways. But when it comes to the topic of selling picks, I like to address it when I have somebody on who does it just because there are some common pitfalls that I think a lot of novice bettors should be aware of. And I talk about these often enough, so I'll, I'll just kind of go in rapid fire fashion here. But one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the best bettors, you know, if they were selling picks, it wouldn't be necessary to them because they'd make enough money for their own betting. If they're really among the very best in the world. Now, there are also some respected bettors who like to sell picks to, you know, guarantee some income and, when respected bettors do so, they are often moving the market with their releases, so followers can sometimes struggle to get down on the same numbers. And a third pitfall would be that for bettors who sell picks that don't move the market, that's often a sign that they're not providing a ton of value with what they're selling. So the cost that somebody is paying to buy those picks is essentially just paying extra VIG for bets that they could already make anyway. So with that in mind, just trying to you know get that out there in the spirit of transparency, um, I would assume that you have your own value proposition for all the hard work that you put in. So how would you describe that value proposition for people looking into possibly subscribing via um, your website and what they could look forward to there? And my value proposition is essentially everything I'm talking about, right? I'm, I'm watching every game. I'm analyzing the, the tape. I'm putting the numbers. I'm writing computer programs that analyze it. I think that I have a unique perspective to handicapping NFL games. And so um, I, I think that leads me to getting value on my bets. And I think demonstrating that process through the work that I do, through the articles I write, 
um, I think shows the value of what I provide. And if, if, you know, people find that valuable, then they can, they can become a member on my website. Um, but I, but I think it's important to, to note a couple things. One is that anytime someone is selling picks or betting advice, I think there's two requirements. And if, if the person doesn't have those two requirements, then they have no business selling picks. The first is they have to be transparent about every single bet that they are giving out. Um, I, I keep a you know meticulous record. I timestamp every email whenever I send out a pick. I record it on my website. And then as soon as that week's games start, I make that, that page public. And I tweet out the picks every week when the games start. And I've never deleted any of those tweets. So you can go back through my history and see every bet I've made, including some really bad ones. Um, you can also see some really bad takes I've had. <laughs> um, I don't delete those because I think integrity is really, really important. And if the person doesn't have that level of integrity and record keeping, then they shouldn't be doing this. Um, the second thing is they need to be able to articulate how they create their edge. And this is something that I don't think many people do is they say, well, I've been betting for 20 years and here's my record. It's like, okay, great. But how do you maintain that record? How do you keep creating value? And they need to be able to answer that question. And when they answer that question, if the person believes it and is compelled by what they have to say, and they have the record to prove it and they have the record keeping, then I think that's a person that you should be listening to. And potentially, if you're interested and don't want to do all the work yourself, buying picks from. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, sports betting is fun. And, um, you know, my, <laughs> I'm thinking about my, my father-in-law, who is a, a lifelong Cowboys fan. Uh, and so for the past 20 years, watching football has been a very disappointing experience for him. Uh, he's, he's probably listening right now. He became a member and now he has something to root for every week that is not the Cowboys. <laughs> and so I like to think that he uh, has, you know, enjoyed his experience of watching football more, uh, following my bets and, ma and making, you know, plays of his own based on those bets um, and just understanding, you know, you, you can kind of root for things other than your team because a lot of times our teams are terrible. Um, and so I, I think what I, the value that I provide is the ability to stay in the game because when you win bets, you can continue with your bankroll and you can bet more. And then, you know, if you want to be a degenerate and, and bet on a long shot parlay, use the profits you make from the smart bets that you get from the sharp people and, and have some fun with it. You know, that's, that's kind of what I, I go for is, is, um, is just all the analysis that I provide um, and the value of that going into the bets. And so the bets are only part of what I offer. It's, it's, all, it's all part of it. Understood. There's there's a bigger package than just getting picks, and I think that alone can be valuable in and of itself as well. Something that I saw you touch on on your website was the fact that I think the quote was, I don't like to lose. And that reminds me of something else I've heard from our friend Las Vegas, Chris. Maybe I should just give him a producer credit at this point. Um, he always has the best ideas for uh, how to approach a conversation. But I gather that your 2020 season was great when we look at the results and your overall ROI. 2021, more of a step back to earth. I'm wondering if there are any differences that you caught when it came to your approach, or was it just variance looking 2020 to 2021? And based on that answer, how the results of last year might affect your outlook on the NFL moving forward? It's a great question. And one, and one that I could talk about for much longer, <laughs> much longer than a few minutes, but um, yeah, so, so 2020 was wildly successful. Everything went well. Um, and then 2021, my first fully public year, I went public. So basically in 2020, I went 70% through week 16. Um, that was when the contest ended. I won the contest and then I decided to go public in week 17 and through the playoffs. Um, and then I went, I was public last year. 
Um, and so since I went public, I'm, I'm only up 14.67 units, which is still up. It's great. Um, but if I had been public during that 70% regular season, I obviously would have a much better number. Um, but, but no, last year, I actually netted a negative two units on the whole year, which was very disappointing. And as a result, I actually gave all my members a free membership this year. Um, because if I'm not delivering winning picks, then, you know, what am I doing, right? Um, but the first thing I did after the season was audit every bet that I made on the entire season. I wanted to understand, you know, like you said, what was different, what went wrong, uh, what can I do better? And specifically on the bets, um, I mean, there was just, there's a lot of variance, right? There was a lot of COVID issues. Um, one, I think one of the funnest things that, that I looked back on was, I think there were eight or nine games where after I made the bet, there was a dramatic change based on, you know, some like a quarterback being ruled out for COVID or, you know, Calvin Ridley not traveling to London, whatever. And I hedged on four of those bets and didn't hedge on five of them just to, you know, decrease my exposure. And I would have won every one of the ones that I hedged and I lost every one of the ones that I didn't hedge. And so it was just like, you know, really, really bad results in terms of short-term reactions to that kind of stuff. I also handled it not the best. I think the pressure of having to, to deliver picks every week was new, whereas in 2020, it was all private. It was everything was my own. Um, and I think I got a little bit too carried away with the number side of things. And so uh, what something I've done this offseason that's going to influence me next season is uh, going back to the Taoist principles again. Uh, one of the things that Taoism um, is uh, sort of resists is the notion that everything has to be categorized and quantified. And I think the parallel when talking about NFL is there's so many numbers out there and there's so much like, well, this line is value over this book. And, you know, here's the EPA for play and all this kind of stuff that a lot of that distracted me from what I did in 2020, which was just look at my numbers, 100 percent, my numbers, understanding the teams, understanding the situations when the teams are more likely to be better or worse than people expect. And then using that to make my bets, regardless of what the numbers said, I took a lot of you know, quote unquote, worst lines that ended up winning because the question wasn't, it wasn't simply how valuable is this team versus this team, right? So, so you know, you, at, you ask a, a typical handicapper and they'll say, well, you know, the Bills are six points better than the average team and the Texans are six points worse and it's at Buffalo, so add two points and you've got Bills minus 14, right? So that's your spread and, and you know, if a book offers minus 13, maybe you've got some value on Buffalo, Maybe it's not worth playing, but whatever. But that's not how I handicap. The way that I handicap is I assume that the market has a fairly good read on each team in terms of quality. And so what I'm looking for is understanding the systems to understand when those systems are more or less likely to fail relative to expectation. So for example, um, the Eagles are last year, at least, were a team that had, a, you know, they, they had a great run game. Jalen Hurst was great when they could run the ball. The running backs were great. But when they were forced into a passing situation, they didn't have the receivers and Jalen Hurst didn't have the sort of mental elements of the game to read the defenses and pick them apart the way the best quarterbacks in the NFL do. And so what you saw was in, in games where they had the lead, they just relentlessly crushed the opponents because they could just run the ball, chew up clock and, and keep the lead. Whereas when they got behind, they were forced into the passing situations, took the run game off the table, and they were significantly worse. And so you can't really say the Eagles were an average team. It was more like the Eagles are four points better than average. These are just off the top of my head. When they, when they have the lead and four points worse when they don't have the lead. 
And so my biggest bet of the NFL playoffs was, um, you know, Bucks minus seven in the wildcard round against the Eagles, because I saw them struggling to run the ball against a really good run defense and then getting behind because Tom Brady is the type of quarterback that can beat a Rich Gannon defense, um, not Rich Gannon, uh, <laughs> whoever that guy is. Um, and so, so no, no, it was uh, who's the Eagles, whoever the Eagles defensive coordinator is, he runs these vanilla schemes that basically work against bad quarterbacks, but good quarterbacks just, you know, thread the needle. Oh, Jonathan Gannon. Jonathan Gannon. Thank you. And so, um, so I predicted that the, the Eagles would get in a hole and that they wouldn't be able to backdoor because they'd be down by too much. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So, so that's, that's a long way of saying my focus next year, I, I will still be trying to get the best of the number. And, and when, when I think games are mispriced, I'm going to jump on them just like these lines that I jumped on early in the summer. Um, but it's going to be more focused on whatever the line is. I want this team in this spot because I understand that this is set up for this team to be better than expectation uh, against a team that is worse than expectation. And so that's going to be my focus. Um, and then the second aspect is I've been running a lot of numbers and backtesting data on comparing my numbers to EPA per play. And when my numbers uh, diverge from EPA per play, my numbers tend to be highly predictive compared to what EPA per play says. Um, and I think that's because EPA per play is baked into a lot of, uh, you know, sharp betting. And so that's kind of how I create my edge. So those two things are going to be driving a lot of my bets this year that didn't so much last year. A few quick follow-ups. I'll go, I guess, in reverse chronological order. You just touched on EPA per play. And earlier on in the conversation, you gave an example of, you know, a team throwing a bubble screen in a very suboptimal spot. But if somebody on the defense falls down, suddenly it's an 80-yard touchdown. If you look at metrics like EPA per play, it gets a very positive result where you would know better by watching every snap that that play probably deserves a negative result. So is, is that where you think your ability to diverge from EPA per play gives you an edge? Or is there anything else that you think when your numbers say one thing and EPA says another, you're more comfortable trusting your own data? It's pretty much the first thing. And that's an extreme example, but they add up, the small things add up over the course of the season. Um, and so, yeah, big, big plays are a big part of it. Turnovers are a big part of it. Like not every turnover is created equal, right? So <clears throat> you, you look at a turnover prone quarterback with a bad offensive line and there's pressure on every play and he's getting sacked, he's more likely to turn the ball over trying to force the ball, trying to get a first down or just, you know, quarterbacks are more likely to get sacked and fumble the ball than, than other ball carriers are versus a situation where, you know, Mahomes throws a 10 yard pass and the receiver catches it in stride and then runs five yards and the defender pops it out from behind and they get a turnover, right? Both of those are fumbles. Both of those are turnovers, but an EPA per play is just going to kind of, you know, weight them the same way because the net result is the same. Um, but my numbers are obviously not going to be the same because that that 10 yard pass is going to lead to a first down almost every time. Um, and so, yeah, it's just other examples like that that I think tend to when those compound, that creates a gap between my numbers and EPA per play that I think is meaningful. And when it comes to game state, circling back on the Eagles, you mentioned maybe they're more or less an average team overall, but they can be very good if they've got a lead and can rely on their strong ground game. And they can be really bad if they're playing from behind and they're struggling in the pass game. We'll see how that plays out this year with A.J. Brown in the system and another year for Jalen Hurts. But if we have just a team like that, theoretically, as an example, I know that selling picks, it's not easy to do anything with in-game betting. But with that knowledge, do you use in-game betting to your advantage? I know you looked at the Bucks in the wild card round and just laid the points pre-kickoff. 
But as the game unfolds, are there any things that you look for that might have you adding on to your position over the course of a game as it's in progress? That's not been a focus of mine in the past, although last year I started doing it for the first time. Um, and it and it was actually very successful. Um, but like you said, it's not something I can advertise. I can't I can't give out in real time, you know, live bets that I'm making because the numbers just aren't there. It's just not practical. Uh, but as far as my own bankroll goes, I found it to be very lucrative, um, particularly. And and this, I mean, this became a meme recently. So uh, I'm sure your listeners are aware. But like, my favorite angle in live betting is to bet a worse number than you had at kickoff. Um, because psychologically, like the markets are created by supposedly equal action. Like obviously the books are more nuanced than that. Sometimes they want to, you know, be exposed to a certain side, but generally speaking, the line represents an average of what the bets they're getting on each side are. And psychologically, it's just so much easier to bet a better number than you saw all week than it is to go the other way. And so sometimes there's actual value going the other way because the, the live line hasn't moved enough. And so, yes, when you combine one, like my, my preconceived notions of a certain team going into the game with two, the, the events that happen in the game that either confirm that or indicate that, you know, that read is going to be correct, then I'll, I'll bet into that and, and, you know, make a little bit of hopefully extra cash for my bankroll that, that I can't give out. So. I think that point about line movement during the game relative to what it was before the game ties in with something I remember from the logic of sports betting, if I recall correctly. A a great book. Can't recommend it highly enough for any better at any level by Ed Miller and Matthew Davidow, who are now heading up Deck Prism Sports. Um, But I believe that they talk about one of those biases of bettors looking to pass on a line that seems efficient before a game starts. But then they think, you know, if we look at basketball, maybe it's, hey, I'll wait for, you know, it's a game of runs. I'll wait for this team to get down by a bit. And then, you know, if it's a pick em game, instead of laying that prior to tip off, I'll, I'll just take plus three and running something to that effect. But when books are posting live lines, oftentimes the reason the line is what it is, is because of what's already transpired in the game. Um, if a line is plus three and running, that is a more correct line at that moment than the pick em was, you know, prior to the game starting. So it's something to be mindful of. To your point, a lot of bettors want to wait and try to get a better number. But if you can be objective enough and have the intestinal fortitude to sometimes take a worse number because of what you're seeing, that's where I think some of the really subtle edges can lie. And one more area I wanted to follow up with you would be on the notion of hedging. You touched on last year having, I think it was nine games with severe COVID effects after you had already locked in positions. And it seemed like every time you hedged, it backfired. Every time you didn't hedge, it backfired. Overall, what's your philosophy when it comes to hedging? I'm generally, you know, I think most most serious bettors agree that you should never hedge unless it's a plus EV bet on its own. Um, and so that's kind of the approach that I take. I mean, I never, you never say never, right? If your exposure is so massive compared to the rest of your bankroll, then you should definitely consider hedging um, if you can. Not You can't always do it. But I'm, I'm typically... Um, yeah, I, if I can make a plus EV bet that secures profit or hedges my risk, then I don't mind making it. Um, so for ex- there was one example last year where it was, um, <clears throat> it was basically, I had bet two, I bet the Cowboys before Dak Prescott was ruled out against the Vikings. Um, and I bet, uh, there was an, another game that week. Oh, I think it might've been, uh, I, I forget what it was, but both of those were to the point where I could. <clears throat> Sorry, I could tease both lines so that, you know, I could still win, even if I lost both bets, I could still win my teaser. 
And so it was just a way to say, I don't want half of my bankroll, like half of my betting bankroll this week to be on two really bad lines. Um, and so I'm going to do this just to limit the range of outcomes that can occur. And that was just a comfort thing that, you know, I, I felt good about doing it at the time. Um, so so I, it, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's, it's very cir circumstance specific, but I'm not I'm not against hedging if you can find a plus EV way to do it. I love the way we've gotten to this part of the conversation, but if I can zoom out a bit and tie a bow around the topic that got us down this path, um, the aversion to losing. I understand that, you know, every better, there's an amount of, you know, competitiveness that everybody's got to have to be willing to lay the vig and take on sports books and really the rest of the betting market every time they make a wager and wanting to win is so natural and it's very inherent in a lot of us. And at the same time, I feel like it can be a little bit dangerous to disdain, you know, to have too much disdain for losing, because if you do this enough, it's inevitable. Even if you're doing a very good job, losing streaks will happen. So from your experience, I'm wondering how you process that individually and then how that might also be affected when you know that this could have an impact on paying customers as well. Yeah, losing is tough. Uh, last year, I mean, was so so I say I was down two units on the year and that's true. But at one point I was down 25 units on the year. Uh, the, the first half of the season was absolutely brutal. Um, and, and some of it was, you know, poor handicapping decisions. Some of it was just the, the natural variance of the game that happens. And that was really hard for me. Um, I, I had not experienced something like that, especially off such a successful 2020. And I think um, humility is, is so important in, in any competitive endeavor. Um, but you have to partner humility with an appropriate level of confidence based on what you know to be true about what you bring to the table. And, and so during that downstretch, there was a lot, of, a lot of time spent, you know, analyzing what I was doing, thinking about my process. But ultimately, I kept coming back to the fact that I was making good bets and that I knew what I was doing and that what I saw in the field was what I was predicting and the specific results did not dictate how well I was doing at what I was doing, if that makes sense. And so that's why I think I saw such a massive upswing towards the end of the year and, and finished the year really well. Um, the cr crowning achievement being uh, predicting the exact score of the Super Bowl, which was super fun. Um, I, I put a, a small $6 wager at 100 to 1 that, that the rounds would win 23-20. And, and I wrote my, in my write-up, that was my predicted score. And so it was really nice to end on that. That wasn't an official bet. You know, my, my members didn't get that, unfortunately. But it was just nice um, to, to end on such a long, consolidated win streak once I really got back to doing what it was that I, you know, the way approaching things the way that I want to approach things. And I don't think if I hadn't have gone through a losing streak, I don't think that I would have been able to refocus and, and really get back to what it was that, that I think um, grounds what I do. And so I'm in a way I'm grateful now, even though it was really hard at the time, you know, the first year going public is my worst year. Um, even though it was really hard at the time, I think it, it has really laid the foundation for what's going to be, in my opinion, a successful long-term future. And I think I'm going to look back at that year and, and realize that, wow, that was, that was a process I had to go through in order to get to where I am. Sounds like a very Taoist way to look back at that experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, when I audited my bets, I felt encouraged. You know, I, I had CLV, like significant CLV on over half my bets. Um, it, it wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't like a reflection of the quality of work that I was doing. You know, it was, it was just variance and I, that you have to be able to deal with. Um, and I hope that, I hope that my members can recognize that. I know 
not all of them can. And and there's a there's a demand that you win in the short term in this industry that's very tough to deal with because that's not the reality. This is a high variance game and, and results can involve a lot of variance. Um, but I think the people that understand what I'm doing are still with me. They recognize the long-term value of what it is that I provide. Um, and I think those are the kinds of people that I want to you know, surround myself with anyway. Well said. Well, as we near the home stretch here, I'd like to weave in the Molinsky Minute, a big pillar of this podcast. One of my biggest takeaways from getting to know and ultimately do some work with Dave was that it seemed like he almost got more than the 24 hours a day that the rest of us get. I mean, he did so much and he knew so much about seemingly everything, could speak brilliantly to any topic and meet anybody right at their level. And I see a bit of a parallel there, perhaps, to what you've got going on because I know you've got a big full-time day job, plenty of other interests. It's quite the balancing act. So with that in mind, how would you say you go about covering all the bases when it comes not only to what you're doing with your own betting from a betting content standpoint, but just other life obligations and hobbies that you want to enjoy as well? Yeah, so I I do have uh, a full-time job, although uh, as of this year, uh, they were gracious enough to let me go onto a flex time schedule. So my time commitments are less than it has been in the past, which is really nice um, because doing this takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of focus. And so um, that's also going to help me, I think, this year. Last year with a full-time job, it's a lot of work. Um, but I'm a very focused person. I'm not I'm not a big social guy. Like, I'm not going out and partying. I'm not, you know, I, like, I know I know this, this podcast is about beer as well. I'm not a big, like, you know, hang out and drink beer kind of guy. Uh, we might have to like cut it me- short. I like my cat. I like my wife and, and I like doing this work, you know? And, and so when you really like what you're doing, it doesn't feel like a struggle to spend time doing it. Like I love writing these computer programs. I love visualizing the data. I love, you know, checking the sportsbook apps every hour to see if the lines have moved. Like these are all things that I, I just enjoy doing. And so it doesn't feel like such a stretch uh, when that's the case. And um, and, and looping back around to the value proposition, um, I, I don't see myself doing my full-time job permanently. It, it's something that's been really, really great for me and my family. It's provided a lot of money, but I would love to be able to move on to something where I feel, you know, much more passionate about it. And so here's my value proposition. You're helping a young man achieve his dream. If you sign up for my membership so that I can have a sustained income that allows me to devote my time to NFL rather than my day job. So that's, that's kind of my goal. There you go. Bring it all full circle, making it mutually beneficial for all parties involved. I think something else, maybe a, a bonus Malinsky minute, if you will, Dave was very well read again on all topics, not just about anything betting or sports related. And you can get a lot of benefit to, you know, that end without being, you know, super social as well. Um, are there any books that you've read that have helped you out a lot in your journey as a better? So interestingly enough, you, you stole the one that I wrote down, which was the logic of sports betting. Um, the thing about sports betting books is it's a little bit paradoxical because if you have an edge and then you write a book about that edge, that edge is gone by the time the book is published, right? So the logic of sports betting was a really helpful book for me because it just gave me the terminology and the language and the thought patterns that you need in order to be serious about betting. And so it wasn't anything about a specific edge or a specific way of looking at things. It was more so like, okay, like I'm starting to understand the way to think in order to make the bets as successful as they can be. And so that was a really valuable book for me. Um, But honestly, like the things that have influenced me the most are 
the sort of Taoist principles I've been talking about. So um, th there's a podcast uh, by Daniele Valelli uh, called The Drunken Taoist. And he's a sort of, I think he's a professor of history and he's an Italian guy. He's, he's crazy, but he's, his podcast really influenced the way that I think and, and just like things like being open-minded, being fluid, always learning, always approaching things from a perspective of what can I learn, um, at, but also being passionate and being true to yourself. You know, like the, the number one thing when it comes to Taoism is, is you have a nature and you have to live within that nature. And when you're living within that nature, you're at your best self. And so all of these things, I think, have colored my perspectives on how to approach NFL betting because I'm just trying to live out those principles and apply them practically to the systems that are NFL teams. And I just love doing that. And, and I, so I think, I think as much as the actual sports betting books have helped me, just philosophy and thought patterns, they've also helped me. Yeah, I like that approach, thinking outside the box a little bit. I mean, as you mentioned, everybody, you know, having a nature and staying true to it without needing to get too deep into the weeds here. I am slowly but surely making my way through Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And when he was writing that, Taoism might have been the farthest thing from his mind. But there's a lot of talk about everything, you know, coexisting with nature and fulfilling its natural obligation. So that's been really helpful for me. I can often get very oriented on specific goals and, you know, hitting a certain number, doing something by a certain time. And sometimes there are simply factors beyond our control that something you thought was going to be you know, the best thing for you, you know, circumstances change and that can affect what the optimal plan would be moving forward. So yeah, trying to be fluid and, and just really embrace, you know, what nature throws at us and, and the, you know, nature that might be within all of us. If you look at, you know, that, that podcast, the drunken Taoist or something like what Marcus Aurelius wrote a lot about in meditations, I think there are some good parallels there. And, and none of that is in any way about betting on one hand. And on the other hand, I think that lessons that can be learned from that type of content, whether it's podcasts or books with seemingly no ties to sports can make people much sharper sports betters if they can, you know, find an escape in that type of stuff and then use it to sharpen their focus when they get back in front of the betting boards. Yeah, perfectly said. One more topic I want to throw your way. I know you just said you're not the biggest beer drinker, but I do understand that from time to time you enjoy a good cocktail. So weaving in the hops or, or at least the cocktail side of things, what do you enjoy to drink when the time comes to relax and maybe just take off the edge a little bit? So I, I also got into cocktail making during the pandemic, uh, which is fun. Um, <clears throat> and I, I like to design my own cocktails, but I mean, every cocktail has already been made. You're just making variations. And so my, my go-to signature cocktail is a variation of the last word. I call it Ash Raven's Flight. It's gin-based with uh, limoncello and green chartreuse and lemon and basil. And you serve it up in a martini glass um, and then, you know, press a basil leaf, put it on top. And it's just it's just a beautiful, uh, you know, citrusy, floral kind of combination that, you know, I really like. Um, maybe your beer drinkers can't really relate. There's also some good beer. here. I'm in Denver. So, you know, it, my but my buddies like beer. And so sometimes they drag me out or my wife will drag me out to a brewery, especially after a hike. Um, so Avery Brewery is, is probably fam famous, but also really, really good. And then there's some others downtown. So, Absolutely. Yeah. In the Denver area, I also know there is Great Divide. There's Prost, which does a lot on the classic lager side of things. Yeah. Uh, Crooked Stave does a lot of good sour beers. And that's often a good transition for people who are more into wine. A lot of their beers might be, you know, aged in red wine barrels. So Denver has plenty to choose from covering the full spectrum. But as you touch on a citrusy floral cocktail, 
a lot of hops really do have some some good parallels there. I think the citra hop, uh, super citrusy, a lot of like grapefruit, orange, and then there are plenty of hops that bring out the floral side of things too. There's even a newer one that's called Laurel, just basically insinuating that there's some lemon and then also a lot of floral presence. So they kind of pushed lemon and floral mm -hmm. together to make the Laurel hop. Uh, so there are some options. If I can find my way out to Denver anytime soon, I'd love to see if we can look for that, you know, citrusy floral combo. I love it in a good IPA. And I'm sure you could show me that combo and some pretty good cocktails that would be eye-opening to me. So again, uh, all along the lines of what you just mentioned with your website and what you're looking to provide to members, getting some value back from them. Um, me on the beer side, you on the cocktail side, maybe some mutually beneficial experiences to be had there. Definitely. And if you're ever in Denver, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll be happy. All right. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I will look forward to it. I, I love getting out there when I can. So hopefully it's not too long before I'm back in the area and we can meet up in person. But for now, I want to be sure to plug your work before we sign off here on Twitter at Sharp Clark NFL. That's Clark with an E at the end. And your website, we've mentioned it several times during this conversation, sharpclark.com. I'll include links in the show notes. Josiah, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? Just be on the lookout. Uh, it's going to be pretty soon uh, when I release my full preseason previews, um, team by team. You know, I, there, there are some team previews you'll see that'll have like, why bet the over? Why bet the under? Mine won't be like that. Mine is going to be, here's the best bet you can make and here's why. It's going to be very direct, content-based um, with a short write-up. So look out for that um, and I'll be advertising that on my Twitter soon. Sounds good. All right. Well, to wrap everything up, I'd like to thank everybody for watching watching, and listening. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops would be to take just a few seconds and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Josiah, once again, thank you so much for the time and insight and keep up the great work. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Props and hops.